You're listening to Tips from the Top Floor, episode 935 for July the 5th, 2023. Tips from the top, from the top floor, tips from the top, all right, from the top floor. Hey, hello and welcome, it's Chris. You are listening to your favorite photography podcast, Tips from the Top Floor, coming to you from... Uh, Hanover from the Viewfinder Villa right outside the gates of Hanover in Germany. I am happy to have you back. And uh, let's see, one, two, three. We're talking about Getty today, about Game Boy, Blade Runner, um, Nerd Level 10,000, something about science, uh, National Geographic, and some trend spotting. Yes, there's a new trend in photography land. Uh, but let's let's kick this off with um, with a slightly juicy piece of news from the photography world, renowned music photographer Alec Byrne has decided to take on the giant Getty Images. Um, this is about a copyright infringement lawsuit. Now, Byrne is, Byrne is no small fry in the industry. He's known for his uh, iconic shots of the London music scene from the 60s and 70s. Um, he captured legends like ABBA and Fleetwood Mac. And uh, what is this about? Well, he alleges that Getty Images has been stealing his photography pretty much. Well, they have... Okay, so what he says, what the lawsuit says is um, that they've been selling his photographs without any agreement or contract with him. He claims that at least 175 Getty Images customers downloaded and copied his photos um, through Getty's premium access subscription option. And at least 62 customers purchased uh, a la carte licenses to his images. And he says, nope, I did not give Getty any permission to do that. Um, the lawsuit particularly focuses on a, on a photo of ABBA that Byrne has shot in his, his private London studio back in 1974. And he claims uh, that he, he only discovered in 2021 that Getty Images were licensing this image out to their clients. Um, and we're talking like publications uh, like the Los Angeles Times, Vox, Dot Dash. Um, they have published that image um, in particular. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, interestingly, <laughs> earlier this year, Getty Images itself, they, they sued Stable Diffusion as an, uh, the AI image company, because uh, Getty claims they had stolen over 12 million of its copyrighted photos. And uh, so it, it seems like Getty Images is caught a bit in a, let's say, a copyright conundrum, um, being both the plaintiff and the defendant in different cases around copyright. It's a bit of a tangled thing here. Um, yeah, so Getty Images. Hmm. Yeah. I'm a, I like them so much. Um, cool project. Here's 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 an interesting project. Um, which initially as a photography. Well, okay. So have you had a Game Boy? Chances are yes. Have you had a Game Boy camera? Not that many people, but um, you know this huge big blob of a thing that you would uh, slot into the Game Boy cartridge slot and it had this ball-shaped big thing on the top which is a camera that can tilt forwards and backwards and um, and the images would be very pixelated and but it, it's a style and it's, uh, it's, a st it's a retro kind of thing that has always had its fans and uh, so here's, here's a, a modder called Chris Graves um, 
And uh, he's given the Game Boy camera a kind of a makeover. Sleek, minimalistic. It transformed that into, uh, well, into a, a Game Boy Mini camera the size of a Game Boy cartridge. Now, that, that's not just a cosmetic change. He's managed to like condense the original Game Boy camera into this small cartridge size. He's done this by using a custom circuit board and a smaller lens, actually a lens from an iPhone XR. Um, but the mini camera uses the same sensor, the same chipset, the same ROM as the original. So it's pretty much the same camera. And I've seen comparison images, yeah, pretty much the same. But um, it is the size of a Game Boy cartridge. And it looks like one, just a little lens on it. And uh, this, the, the shell of that camera is 3D printed. Um, opens up possibilities. It's it's a pretty cool project. So um, if you're a fan of the Game Boy camera, this might be right up your alley. Okay, this this next one. Here's some spy stuff. You know the the, the things. There's things in photos that might reveal information about you that you might not want to reveal. Um, here's a good example. Keys. Classic example has been possible for a long time. Take a photo of a key or someone dangles their car keys <laughs> into the camera and now uh, people can recreate uh, uh, duplicates of those keys based on that photo or look at even fingerprints on a photo with a current camera with decent resolution. Fingerprints, you could use fingerprints of photos to make uh, like a like a fake finger to trick a keypad into letting you in cameras are becoming increasingly high resolution and that's awesome on the one side and a little bit scary on the other side now enter a blade runner um like thing that yeah this is this is okay this is really interesting a, a research team from the University of Maryland has developed an AI-powered method that can reconstruct complex scenes and objects in 3D using only the reflections in a person's eye. Yes, you heard that right. The reflections in your eye. So our eyes do reflect the room around us in one way or another. Um, acts a bit like a wide-angle lens, um, so you get a distorted version of that. Um, and that that team has has like overcome a lot of challenges, such as like they could have to compensate for uh, not just the shape of the iris, but the texture of the iris that gives you like a, a big like a backdrop that is not easy to separate from what's in front of it. And then um, they pulled that off, uh, and they did real world experiments. So. Um, they were able to successfully reconstruct a room in 3D using these eye reflections. And that is something straight out of a sci-fi movie. <laughs> this is very Blade Runner. So they they used um, nerves, neural radiance fields for that, which, again, can use can create 3D scenes from 2D data inputs in some way. And um, now... It, if you see the examples, yes, you do, you do not get like a high resolution of what is around it, but they had stuff on a table in front of that person, and that stuff was 3Dified um, based on the reflections in their eyes. So this is fascinating, and it's also a reminder of like 
how technology at science continues to push the boundaries of what's possible um it could well be by the way there's also ai in that of course and this could well be something that in future adds information to ai processing of images and might make photography different and better um but of all of course it raises interesting questions what does this mean for privacy like could this technology be misused can we we want to <laughs> If we want to shield ourselves from uh, from people prying into our private life, uh, should we wear sunglasses from now on? Always? Or special lenses? Special contacts that, <laughs> I don't know, that reflect something else? I don't know. It's almost the future photography is a moving target and this is, uh, it's our job to keep up with it. So let's keep our eyes open. Pun intended, <laughs> and see where this takes us. I just, yeah, this is weird. This is really weird. Um, next one, Nerd Level Ten Thousand. So it's a it's a fascinating project about photography and how it like physically works. Like you know, there's there's a light ray and it goes through a lens and that lens bends the light and it then goes through an aperture and to through more lenses and then hits a sensor and it gets captured by either red green or a blue pixel and then it, and so on and so on <clears throat> enter blender blender is an open source 3d software that is used to to render movies and stills and things it's been used in uh in some big productions um it's pretty much state of the art and it's free and it's awesome and uh blender has become so good that it can do physical simulations of light so it, it it always like like there's always modules in there that can do physics in terms of like things bumping into each other and uh, to to make that realistic that's very important to make a realistic movie but this goes down to the level of simulating light so a photographer um this is a link to a video in the show notes that uh if you're nerdy enough, you might want to watch it. A photographer has taken that in to the extreme and he has built a camera in Blender that simulates light and the optics. So it's like he does he makes a, a model in in Blender of a box with a hole. He makes a pinhole camera and then he cranks up the amount of like samples for that operation, and that makes a picture. It simulates the light going through that hole, and on the other side he places like a canvas and it makes a picture, a pinhole picture. And he continues to, to like build a proper camera box and then he builds a, a lens, like a, a, a glass lens made of virtual glass, but that simulates how light gets bent in glass. And so he has a lens that then projects the image into the camera and then he builds, <laughs> he, he continues, he builds virtual film as in like three layers that capture different wavelengths and then he combines those three back into a color photo and then he builds even like an aperture into that lens that can be changed by turning uh, like a virtual aperture ring you can link these things together physically in in blender now, it's not 100% perfect but the photos are amazing that come out of this even and and even Blender has its limitations, of course, but it's damn near close. And this is 
really, this is nerd level 10,000. This is so awesome. And the resulting images are, are great. Uh, the article in the links or the video in the links shows uh, some of them and uh, down to the bokeh and other kind of artifacts gener generated by those virtual glass lenses. Now, again, not perfect. He writes under the video. Um, let me quote him. Try this at your own risk. I had this idea 10 years ago, finally got around to it. Took a good couple of months to maybe I'll have to come back in another 10 years in order to properly simulate diffraction and lens flare. So yeah, highest recommendation, go check it out. Um, wonderful photography-related science-y uh, nerd stuff. Speaking of science, um, there's an interesting field in, f in scientific photography. Um, uh, okay, this Art conservation. <laughs> Let's make a jump to art conservation. <laughs> um, so, so if you look at old paintings, they have uh, varnish on them, patina, like the gunk of hundreds of years that has collected on those images, and this is usually a very like a weird brownish kind of layer that makes the colors duller, and that. Um, uh, people who want to conserve and 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 take well, people who want to conserve these images and and restore them to their original uh, pristine colors, they have to take that varnish off. It's one part of it, and it's it's a painstaking process because you see people with cotton swabs and and uh, cleaning solutions and and trying to guess where does the varnish end and where does the uh, picture start so you take only take the varnish off and not dissolve like part of the actual color so uh, a team of scientists at king's college in london has developed a super sensitive camera that's about to revolutionize the way um that we preserve our cultural heritage um it's not it's not a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a camera yeah it's not your like run-of-the-mill dslr it's a camera that uses like a a, a, a new wish imaging technology it's called uh, macroscopic fluorescence lifetime imaging, FLIM for short. And FLIM isn't isn't new. It's been used in the me medical field to study and to track cancer cells and uh, even detects like brain tumors in these things. Very, very clearly delineates tumors from the, the rest of uh, the, the surrounding stuff. But this time it's being used for art conservation and that might be a bit of a game changer here because, again, traditionally art uh, conservationists, they have had to like really know what they're doing. They would use ultraviolet light and a whole lot of guesswork to get it right and uh, really relies on the skill of the person. And it's prone to not being entirely accurate but this new camera system removes the guesswork by picking up like the minute differences in how this centuries-old varnish appears next to the paint and the canvas so um the system has i don't know technically i don't fully understand it but it's kind of makes the like like you you shine a blue light against it and then the, the camera kind of times every pixel times how long it takes the like the 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 varnish fluorescing and that makes it possible for some in some way or another 
um, to to really exactly t tell those apart, make them visible. Um, so yeah, art conservation and photography. All right. National Geographic. National Geographic has a very special place in my heart. The magazine. Because, um, I mean, if you were in the United States, this has always been around for you. Um, but a German boy who grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, that was different. We didn't have National Geographic here. It was an American thing. Um, for the longest time, um, they started bringing it over here later. But back in that time, uh, we didn't have that. Um, but our family had an American, uh, an American friend from California, Valentina Valena, the old lady. She's uh, not alive anymore, but um, she, yeah, I, I remember her visiting um, back in in the eighties uh, a few times. And when I was around fourteen. Probably um, for my birthday, she gave me a subscription to National Geographic. And for two to three years during that time in my youth, every month I would receive an envelope from the United States with the new issue of National Geographic in it. And that helped pique my interest in, in the world, in traveling, and in the English language, because <laughs> if I wanted to read something, I had to translate it. And... That's why this next story kind of really touches me on a personal level because it seems like like the winds of change are blowing through the hallowed halls of National Geographic. The magazine is is known for its like amazing photojournalism and wildlife photography and um they have reportedly laid off the last of their staff writers along with a number of other employees. And uh well, okay, so this is according to the Washington Post reporting. Um, according to them, 19 employees, including staff writers and members of the audio team, I guess around, well, yeah, you need audio production these days. Um, they already were given the bad news back in April. And uh, this kind of coincides with the widespread layoffs of their parent company, which is Disney. Now, there is a bit of a mixed message here because while it's been reported that all staff writers have been let go, there's an internal source somewhere that suggests that the magazine still employs writers and editors. Um, so there's a bit of interpretation here. This could mean that like dedicated writing roles have been eliminated. Um, maybe article assignments are now being outsourced to freelancers or cobbled together by editors or written by i have no idea um there's just two wildlife crime reporters who remain on staff their salaries are apparently funded by the wildlife watch program um which is supported by the non-profit national geographic society um they already had some layoffs back in september 2022 like the six top editors were let go back then and uh, they claim they will continue to publish monthly, um, but the copies will no longer be on U.S. newsstands. So, yeah, it's it, it kind of it really hurts, right? I grew up with National Geographic, and uh, it seems to be pulling back on the legendary photography that is known for 
um, the magazine has reportedly curtailed photo contracts that allowed photographers to spend like months in the field. Yeah, and National Geographic insists that these these staff changes won't impact the quality of their storytelling. Um, yeah, uh, just just a bit of history here. Disney purchased National Geographic back in 2017 as a part of a larger merge with 21st Century Fox. And that was kind of a turning point because that's when the magazine turned into a for-profit organization. Um, up to then, it was a non-profit journal of the National Geographic Society since 1888. So there you go. All right, and last but not least, um, <laughs> this this one I was I thought this was really weird initially, but then uh, yeah, okay. So here's the story: influencer uh, Liliana Madrigal has stirred up a bit of a buzz on TikTok. Uh, she claims that the the secret to the perfect selfie isn't your iPhone's camera, but rather the screenshot function. Yep, they call it screenshotting. So, um. I, I would have shrugged this off, but that video has racked up like 4 million views at this point, I guess, roughly. And uh, uh, the, what's her name again? Madrigal. She takes, she takes a jab at the iPhone's camera quality for selfies, um, calling it really bad. And um, she advocates for a pretty unconventional method posing for a selfie on the front-facing camera and then screenshotting the image from the camera app on the screen. And then she crops it and makes it look like a regular photo without the screen elements. And uh, it's it's notable that this thing received like 400,000 likes and uh, lots of comments calling her genius for that tip. And of course, I mean... <laughs> This reminds me of when I was a kid, I, uh, I, I grew up again in the 70s, 80s. Um, back then, I, I record, sometimes recorded something onto a cassette recorder by just putting the cassette recorder in front of, let's say, a TV and record through the microphone. So very unconventional, but it did the job. It uh, wasn't, wasn't good in quality and anything, but it did the job and it was okay. And for the time, it was plenty good. Now, of course... We as photographers, we have these cameras with 5,000 megapixels and super quality and so on. And uh, so I, I, I tested this. I tested this. And of course, of course, resolution is one issue. 12 megapixels, that's what the front camera does versus like the two megapixels of the screen. So you get this um, drop in resolution, which is part of the image. Like the image comes out softer, of course, at the same size. So um, it is really good at hiding blemishes in these things. So th that's one of the effects that I'm pretty sure we're seeing here. Um, the other is that it's not mirrored. Like, if you, if you do that, then you see yourself like you see yourself in on the camera, which is mirrored. Um, and that might change the perception here. And then last but not least, the one thing that this live preview on the screen doesn't do is all the processing that the iPhone camera does. And if you've ever looked into this, the iPhone camera takes photos all the time without you pressing a button. And then when you press the button, it uses photos taken prior to you pressing the button and after you're pressing the button. It's like 5, 10, 15, I don't know how many photos that will then be fed through the, the optimizing algorithms and 
bring out the detail and so on. And it's it is it's a different look than the just a plain photo from the camera that is it's also processed but not to that extent and uh, a lot of people seem to prefer the air quotes crappy kind of quality from a screenshot to what the camera tickles out so um i i think it's just it's just um again as in air quotes a serious photographer that made me chuckle but then i'm also witnessing a new generation dealing with photography completely non-technical completely they don't care if it's two megapixels or 12 megapixels because it will be used in a context that doesn't really uh rely on resolution um the processing isn't isn't working so they do it in a different way and it's uh it's fine it's good enough it doesn't matter if it's not perfect so they they experiment um and i think that's a a refreshing approach to photography even though i probably wouldn't do that but yeah screenshotting it's apparently a thing so there you go And that was it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, as always, you can leave feedback for the show at tfttf.com slash hi. Let me know. Do you have questions? Do you want me to discuss a specific topic? Do you have an anecdote or something that happened to you that you... Uh, that you are curious about let me know tfttf.com slash hi here's mark who has done just that he writes hi chris we are certainly living in another photography renaissance or the death of it i listened to a zoom call with asmp yesterday and it's really the wild west out there regarding ai a lot has to be sorted out on both the importing of images and their export or usage adobe is taking the right path but i feel that pandora's box has been opened and it will be 10 times bigger in a week regarding using ai for street photography i think it's a losing battle you have to remember that ai doesn't make a face it could be I could be wrong. It is taking a photo from a source and replacing it. I believe this will all come to a head when faces can be tracked eventually. I just think about how that will affect street photographers. Once someone finds their face in your photo, the lawyers are going to have a field day. Now add to that an AI-generated face of someone else who the AI didn't get permission from and you don't get permission from. What happens if the face goes in onto a body that everyone recognizes? What can, uh, When can it be considered art? And can it be printed in a book of street photography or sold as a fine art print for your wall? I love the street photography genre, but I fear it may be at its end once people can find your photo of their face in the image. Thanks for the great work you do. Hey, Mark! Long time no here. Glad, glad you're doing. Uh, you're you're still in photography professionally. This um, this feedback goes back to the um, to the the article about the photographer replacing people's faces in street photography using AI generated different faces. I think I believe it was in the last episode. Um, I agree. 
that this is a bit of the Wild West right now and that the pace of change is kind of frightening. Uh, but there's one important thing to understand, and that is the AI does not just copy and paste. It generates. Um, so these generated faces are, like, they're really generated. Um, but, of course, based on training on real-world material, on photography out there, on people's faces, it's the best comparison I can come up with is like a, a bit like, let's say you study painting and you study what a Picasso looks like. You do this really well, spend years, and then you try to paint your own Picasso. What you paint might look like a Picasso. It might even come close, but it's not an exact copy. Um, it's a newly generated piece of art that you just made based on what you learned. And the AI does something similar to that. All those current lawsuits that target AI companies are not because an AI would make an exact copy or make a collage of copyrighted snippets. Um, that is not how it works. Those lawsuits are about the material that the AI uses for training. So Getty, for example, suing Stability AI, that's what they are suing them over, that, that uh, Stability used Getty's images for training. So we will see some things come out of that. Uh, I just don't know which direction that will go and when it will happen. But yeah, yeah, let's let's keep our eyes open. And again, if you want to get your feedback here on the show, tfttf.com slash hi. And again, thanks to all of you who support the show on Patreon. Patreon is awesome, not just as a means of financial support, but again, it's a... It's it's an incentive boost for me to bring out new episodes because um, there, there's so many things tucking at my calendar right now. Um, so yeah, thanks of all who support your favorite creators. Not just this show, but um, there's plenty more out there who use Patreon. Uh, you can find out more at tfttf.com slash support. That's tfttf.com slash support. And as usual, Patreon supporters are first in line. You get to listen to new episodes before anyone else does. So, Eastern European Electric Photo Road Trip is a go, or well, has been for a while. Um, there's one spot open, one last spot open on the way from Berlin to Transylvania. Um, find out more at discoverthetopfloor.com. It starts on September the 2nd. And now go out and take amazing photos. Be nice to each other. Again, make sure to spend some time in the sun. It's summer outside. And of course, happy shooting. <laughs>